0: Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, everybody, Shabbat Shalom. The Greater Exodus. We want to talk about the Greater Exodus. And we'll just start off with the Torah portion this week as a, a jumping off place. And so, this little excerpt out of Kitetse, and, and the thing to remember about Kitetse is that it starts with when you go out. This is a little bit farther down in the Torah portion, but it starts out when you go out. And it's all that sort of like when you go out to war. The pronoun there is in the singular, like Israel is considered one people. And that's the thing to remember about your identity. If you were identifying as a member of the house of Israel, if you're a descendant of Abraham, whether through pedigree or through faith, if you identify with the house of Israel, then you're one people. And you need to consider that when you go out. Because if part of the people, again, began committing abominations and worshiping idols from other lands, then it's going to infect and affect everyone else who goes out. Uh, So you have to be very single-minded when you go in and out, especially as you're passing in and out of the land of Israel, but when you're waging war with an enemy, you have to remain very single-minded. But here's here's what I wanted to read. It says in Deuteronomy 23.3, it says, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, and none of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because and because they hired against you Bilam, the son of Beor from Petur of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Bilam. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. So you can see that the Holy One has a very low opinion of sorcery. He also has a very low opinion of trying to curse people who were blessed. And I think this is why that we have, you know, at least two cautions in Scripture. Be careful about reviling angelic majesties, because even though it's not um, blaspheming the Holy One, you know particularly personally if he's the one who appointed them to their places in essence you are kind of cursing him you're trying to cast out his will when he says no that's what i have put in place for that place and so that's why it's very important to know the the difference between you know taking authority over something that you know should be part of your life something that shouldn't be part of your life and something you really need to seek the father on it to find out. Because if you're not sure, um, that's where prayer comes in. Like Daniel, he didn't know when the answer would come. But sometimes we just want to, because we don't like the tests that he puts us through, we, we start casting out demons left and right when he's like, no, this is an adversary I've put in in place in order to test you, to see what's in your heart. Don't cast the instrument out of your way. He'll do that. And we'll see an example of even how angels won't rebuke one another um, in terms of judgment. They'll they'll defer to the throne itself in such a case. But this is what Beor and Bilam, this is where he, he and Balak kind of try to blur the lines here. You can't curse what is blessed. You can't violate the will of Adonai. You cannot manipulate the boundaries for your own prosperity or for your own security. And this is what cursing and sorcery do. They attempt to blur very clear boundaries, which are drawn by Adonai. If he says, don't try to call up the dead, then don't try to call up the dead if he has set boundaries there's a lot of freedom within those boundaries and there's a lot of security within those boundaries but when we want complete freedom from his will which is called rebellion when we want to redraw the boundaries of authority to in you know benefit us as an individual or as groups then we have basically entered into a place like sorcery so instead of being able to curse israel Bilan was forced in his vision to see Israel encamped in total unity. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together. And in his prophecy, we could see that he was forced to see Israel basically dwelling in the Garden of Eden because it it describes the, you know, waters flowing like the buckets. It describes basically the, the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. And what he realizes is, you know what, I won't be able to enter in there. He says, I wish my end would be like theirs, but his end won't be like theirs. And that's the thing. If if you're a rebel, if you try to tap into these principalities and powers or to some demonic power in order to circumvent the boundaries that are drawn by the word, then that's not a home for you. I don't, I don't know where you are <laughs> exactly. Um, never hope to go there, be there. But That's not your home because the Garden of Eden and the land of Israel, these are places where people live in unity because they are unified in agreeing that obedience is the way to live and to serve the Holy One, right? So let's just look at this, review this right quick. Psalm 104.4, it says, he makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. Right? And as we break that down into the Hebrew, uh, the winds are the ruchot. It's like the spirits. And his messengers, the Malachab, these are angels. And it says, flaming fire, his ministers, his personal servants. So um, the angels are his personal servants. We know that there's the angels of the four winds, and they do affect world affairs. All right, But all these angels are at his disposal. And Yeshua even talked about how he had angels at his disposal who could do his will. He didn't have to get on the cross. He could have called down all kinds of angels in his defense. But because he was obedient and he knew the, we might call it the long game, he says, no, this has to happen. Everything has to happen according to prophecy. Uh, but this is the role of a, an angel. They are messengers. They are they are beings under authority. They don't make up their own rules. Remember, they were talking about a different realm if we're talking about something demonic, something that's transgressing a boundary. But these angels, these are his ministers. These are his servants, his personal servants. And that's why we have to be careful. We might think we're rebuking a demon, but If it's just something, an obstacle in our way, um, some unanticipated problem, it doesn't follow that it's always a demon. Because out in the wilderness, the Israelites were tested. It didn't mean demons were chasing them. It just meant that he was testing their hearts. He was putting obstacles in their way to see what they would do. And so they, they ended up blaming everybody, but who they should have blamed, which was themselves. And often we do exactly the same thing. But this is the kind of the idea behind the encampments in the wilderness. They weren't random because they were preparatory. And so you've got, like we said last week, you've got the priests and the Levites camped around the Mishkan or the tabernacle itself. And then the 12 tribes were encamped in a particular order around the priests and the Levites. Again, with the tree of life, the ark in the middle of the encampment. And so what are they doing? They are protecting the presence of Adonai. They're like warriors. Even though they're facing, you know, the presence within them, nevertheless, they can also face and move in any direction in a moment to protect from an enemy from the outside. And the encampment was a a preview of what we see in Revelation, where you see... The 12 tribes judging, ruling from the 12 gates of Jerusalem. They're ruling and reigning with King Messiah. And so, what we're looking for, um, you know, and had they remained obedient, it it would be a different story at this point. It it would have been a much shorter story than what we have. But this is the longer story. Nevertheless, that's the prophecy looking forward. So, there's a, a really beautiful restoration coming. And that's going to be. Um, Israel functioning as a nation of priests, helping to judge with King Messiah from the twelve gates of Jerusalem. There's a restoration to that original calling, and so out in these nations of exile, the the tribes of Israel are being prepared to judge in the coming kingdom. And the the beauty of that is that Israel is learning the languages, learning. Um, the history, the geography, the customs. They're going to know everything about these nations where they've been scattered. So as they are called into that righteous nation to judge, as the nations come up, those who were left who didn't go up against Jerusalem, battling King Messiah in that millennial reign, the hard cases will go up to Jerusalem for judgment. And so when they come up for judgment, they will be able to engage people uh, from those 12 tribes, resurrected people from those 12 tribes who are very familiar with the culture of the nation from where they've come. So that's helpful. Uh, So as the nations in that way, and sometimes through judgment, that's how we learn. And so they're going to come up to learn the Torah and the word of Adonai from Jerusalem. And we can look at Acts 2. They're going to be Uh, able to be instructed in a known tongue, even though Hebrew might be our native language. It might be our pure language. It it might be a while before the nations fall in line on that one. But before all this can happen, the footsteps of Messiah are going to have to shake loose some principalities and powers. They're they're not going to be needed in the places where they are. Because remember, if Israel had acted according to the plan. Remember the, the there's 12 constellations out there that in the stars, they reflect each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, of course, they've been corrupted into astrology, but there's a reason that they're out there because they represent the principalities of the 12 tribes of Israel and how they will rule and reign with King Messiah in order for that to come to pass, for Israel to take that position again, then there's going to have to be other principalities and powers that have been appointed interim to, they're going to have to be shaken out of their places in order for Israel to arise. So when Israel arises with their Messiah, according to that wilderness encampment calling, the understanding is they're going back to Jerusalem and they're going to dwell there in Jerusalem. They're going to judge at those 12 gates. And that's in Revelation 21 12 and uh, also verse 21. So, right now, we're in a wilderness of the peoples and we're awaiting something that that's called the greater exodus or the final exodus. And it's a little bit different from the first exodus from Egypt, but we can learn from the pattern. Let's look at Deuteronomy 4:33 right here. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders, and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. See, these, these plagues had to occur in Egypt. Those principalities and powers uh, that Israel were living under in Egypt, they had to be shaken out of their places in order to release an entire nation. In order to gather Which, you know, apparently, at least at the time of the straw incident, they were scattered all over Egypt trying to find enough straw. And so they still had to be gathered in order to to walk out in the exodus. So that was a great thing preceded by great signs, wonders and miracles, just like you're seeing in the book of Revelation in order to instruct extract an entire nation. From all these other nations, then those principalities and powers are going to have to be shaken. Remember, we're not struggling against flesh and blood. And that's that's just the end result. That's what we see with the physical eye. But see, the, the principalities and powers over them also have to be shaken out of their places. Once they're shaken out of the place, then the, the physical people we see, the, the political leaders, you know, the... The military leaders, the economic leaders, all of those. Once you shake their principality and power in the heavenlies, then they lose their sp- lose their place and their space below, and that's so that you might know who is lord over them. He is God. There's none other besides Him, and that that gives us the clue, though. These princes they will rule over particular territory. And often these territories will go to war with one another. They're a little bit rowdy in that respect. Uh, We're going to attribute that to the human beings. (laughs) And yet, typically what you see, even if a nation is defeated and deported, they tend to be scattered out. But you never see an entire nation maintained. You don't see an entire people group taken out of another people group. It's it's unheard of. It's unprecedented. And who could follow that? Usually you just have a change of kingdom, a change of regime, a change of government. One is set down and one is set up. But this is remarkable. An entire nation was taken out of another one. And because it is so unprecedented that he could take out an entire nation intact, is called the greater Exodus, where, you know, it says in scripture, we're not even going to call to mind the first one, because, yeah, that was spectacular. He took an entire nation out of Egypt. But what about when he takes an entire nation out of every nation on earth? That's noteworthy. <laughs> That's a little more memorable. Um, so, uh it's, it's actually mentioned three times. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 4.20, 1 Kings 8.51, and Jeremiah 11.4. But remember, we're looking at Egypt as the pattern. That's the important thing. Egypt is the pattern. And Egypt is referred to as an iron furnace, an iron furnace. In other words, you have to come through the fire. So it's not as if there weren't problems with the nation of Israel in Egypt, they had fallen, you know, as Ezekiel says, into horrible idolatry. So at first there had to be a refining fire there. Were they willing to leave behind their idols? Were they willing to accept um, that the Lord, he is God, there is no other besides him? Because if not, they're not going to put the blood on the doorpost. They're happy where they are with the gods of Egypt and serving the prince's in that principality of Egypt. And so first there's a furnace. They have to pass through a fire to even be prepared to go on this greater or this first exodus. And it's called the wilderness of Egypt. Here's a, here's a couple of references. It says, um, which I commanded your forefathers on that day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace saying, listen to my voice and do according to all that I command you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God. Right. This is back in uh, uh, referring to Egypt as the iron furnace. Remember what happened in the garden of Eden? They didn't listen to his voice. And then when they heard the voice walking in the garden, they were naked, ashamed, and they had to go because they didn't listen to his voice. So again, Egypt is the iron furnace. It's like a preparatory step. Am I going to be able to go back into the garden? Because I've learned how to listen to his voice. And then Ezekiel 20, verse 34, it says, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm a mighty hand and outstretched arm. If you're if you're keeping up with your prophecy glossary or your your symbol glossary, um, just a little tip right here because you encounter it a lot in prophecy. The hand is something he does in the short term. The outstretched arm is something he does in the long term. So when he says, "I I I brought you up with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm." There was an immediacy. I brought you out of Egypt. But the outstretched arm tells you that there will be a greater exodus. There will be an Egypt in the future that he brings the people out of, according to that pattern. And so did Israel come out with a mighty hand? They did. But he's also going to bring us out with an outstretched arm. Because that's, remember, that's the long term, right? If you're keeping your glossary, your journal, that's something to put in there. It's, it's valuable. So he says, with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. Okay, remember, it's it's the wrath of the Lamb. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Just as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you. So the idea is Egypt itself was a wilderness. Egypt itself was a wilderness. It was an iron furnace of testing. So he was judging them even before they left Egypt to enter into that in-between place of the wilderness between Egypt and the, the land of Israel itself. And then he goes on in verse 38. He says, I will purge from you, the rebels, those who revolt against me. I will bring them out of the land where they reside, but they will not enter the land of Israel. So you will know that I am the Lord. Now that's troubling because there are people who can actually make it out of Egypt, just like with the first exodus. They knew enough to put the salvation blood on their door, but once they got into the wilderness and he truly started testing their hearts, then they fell in the wilderness. And he says, you know what? I'm going to find the rebels and the revolters. The rebels and the revolters don't always show their colors right off the bat. They have a sense of self-preservation. <laughs> Even an animal has a sense of self-preservation. So it's, it's not hugely higher, right? But nevertheless, they can go through the this wilderness of the land of Egypt, enter into judgment there, pass that judgment. He will take you out into that in-between place where he's basically gathering you together to take you into the, the land of promise, which remember was only 11 days away, according to plan A. So it's just a little interim period. In fact, if you look at it, it's like the distance between the Feast of Trumpets, which is coming up really soon, and the day after Yom Kippur. Remember Yom Kippur is 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets. And remember at the the closing of the gates on Yom Kippur, that's when the decrees are sealed. So see, had they made it to the closing of the gates of Yom Kippur is one way of looking at it. They would have entered in the land the next day and they could have got set up, started building their their Sukkot, getting ready for Sukkot, right? So in the spring, there's a kind of a, a, a view of it, it could have just been an eleven. You you could have had a Sukkot pretty much when you left Egypt eleven days later, but instead it took him forty years. So there's two levels of judgment. He's going to judge you where you are among the peoples, and then he's going to bring you out from the peoples. But if you show your colors as a rebel and a revolter and a complainer and a griper, then he's like. No, you're not ready. Let's wait for the second resurrection. But, you know, there's plenty of graves in the wilderness. Okay. There were lots of graves in Egypt, (laughs) but you made it this far, right? So it doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means your soul is not prepared for that higher realm of ruling and reigning with King Messiah at that point, right? So there's an incredible refining. Fire that's taking place right now in the wilderness of the peoples in our Egypt's, but the good news is this has to happen because it's preparing us to journey home. I think with the internet, it's given us so many opportunities to reveal who we are, because it lets so many words out into the the ether or whatever you want to call it, whether they're written words. Or whether there's spoken words like this, all kinds of words can go out there. And so he's giving us an opportunity to speak the good news, to speak his word, to say things it is written, to be an encouragement to others, to give a, a, a great testimony to others, or to enter into gossip, to enter into complaining, to enter into wrath, to enter into discouragement. He says, okay, I'm going to contend with you where you are. And he is, he's testing us right now to see what kind of words we'll say about him and say what about one another, but there's going to be a rescue out of these nations. What we don't want to do is be rescued out of our nations. And as he gathers us during that 10 day period, either you know, I think there's one in the spring based on the message to the the first three assemblies of Revelation that he says, you know, don't despair. If some of you are going to be thrown into prison for 10 days to be tested. I think there might be a, a 10 day test in the spring feasts, but I think it's simply a mirror again of what's going to happen in the fall, which we're more familiar with that 10 day period between the Feast of Trumpets. And Yom Kippur, just like make sure you repent. If you're not prepared for the Feast of Trumpets, you've got ten days to get it right. Because what happens on the eleventh, you're ready to cross over. So, we've got a miracle here. He's going to not just take us out of the lands where we're scattered; he's going to gather us up and. We're going to come up from this wilderness looking much different than we did, you know, under the rule of those principalities and those powers. And so now we have um, kind of a uh, through this refining process, he's making sure we're ready to agree that. Yes, his rule is supreme. His will trumps our will every single time. So, in extracting his nation from among the other nations, tribes, and tongues, we have to understand that um, that this shaking will have to take place in the heavenlings, just like with Egypt. Uh, except this time, there will be powers and principalities shaken all over the face of the earth, because. His people are scattered over the face of the earth, so it's not just the gods uh, and the princes of Egypt that have to be shaken. He has to shake the entire thing, and you get that when you read the Book of Revelation when he talks about you know the the planetary and some of the astral wonders that are taking place. We have to look up and say, "Hey, wait a minute! It's more than just." what we've seen on the evening news. It's more than just the line at the gas station. It's more than just spending my whole you know, uh, paycheck on groceries. It's way beyond that. There's things happening in heavenly realms. And he's preparing us to arise. Yeah, this all looks bad. It all looks bad. It all looks bad. But if the footsteps of Messiah are coming, I matter they're just pounding down. Bam, bam. We'll see when these principalities and powers, they hear the footsteps of King Messiah, they know their time is short. And so things are going to start shaking up. There will be chaos. There will be confusion. That has to happen, just like the chaos and confusion caused by the the plagues on Egypt. It upset the entire thing. Economic, military, agricultural. There was no place that was not affected by the 10 plagues. In the same way, in the book of Revelation, there's no place on earth that's not going to be affected by the plagues and the chaos that are going to be poured out in order to shake all these things out of their places. Because remember, these angels, their job is to defend their particular nation, their particular territory, people group, or even individuals, So we don't necessarily consider them demonic because they're doing their job. They're angelic majesties. Uh, But because they are so single-minded and there's so many of them out there, basically doing our job for us in some cases. Uh, They are defending their territories as assigned. And you can see how that would cause problems when you've got two things trying to interact here. And that's, again, don't rebuke every obstacle. Pray about it. Make sure um, that you're appealing to the throne if you're having issues. Um, a Satan is not always a Satan with a capital S. Satan in Hebrew merely means adversary, something that stands in your way. And so if there's just an obstacle in your way, consider why it's there. In fact, did you put it there? Did your actions, are these just consequences? Are they just natural consequences? There's no angelic majesty. There's no demon. There's no devil. There's no Satan. There's no horns. There's no tail. These are just the consequences of our actions or the consequences of living in a fallen world. It's entropy. It's creation groaning. And so it's not necessarily your fault, but it's not necessarily a demon's fault either. It's not necessarily an angel's fault. We don't know that because we can't see into that room. So we need to be very careful and do like Daniel, you know, pray and wait, pray and wait, pray and wait. Because often what we perceive as an adversary is just an angel doing its assigned task. It's just like, you know, with, with policemen, we may not always like the fact that they're out there writing tickets when we drive 90 down the interstate. Well, Why you want to hate on the policeman? That's his job. That's what he was appointed to do. And so maybe that's just the consequences of driving 90 in a 70 mile per hour zone. You don't necessarily have to bind and take authority over the policeman and cast him out. We we have to exercise a little bit of good sense. And right here is the reason why it's in in, uh, Jude 1, 8 through 10. He says, yet in the same way, these people also dreaming, dreaming, I'm not sure why the dreaming, I'd like to look into that. Uh, They defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak abusively of angelic majesties. But Michael, Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him an abusive judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. These people disparage all the things that they do not understand. That's the key. Don't disparage things you don't understand. Just wait. Defer to the throne. Because you see what the death angel is doing here is his job. It's his job when somebody passes away to go take care of that soul, take care of that body, make sure the body you know, um, pretty much descends down into the dirt it was taken from. Transport the soul, all you know, I don't understand. I've never been dead, and I'm not volunteering to find out, but there are tasks, uh, there are chores to be done as it concerns when a human being passes away. And there are particular majesties that are in charge of that process. Well, in the case of Moses, Moses was a special case, and so Michael, who is the the chief prince of Israel. When he wants to go and take the body of Moses, then we've got a territory problem. We've got the death angel. This is his territory. This is his assigned task. Well, remember, they're very single-minded. And getting them to divert off of that task basically involves getting an override switch from the throne. They have to hear from the throne, uh, this way you get the, even the name, Michael, who is like El? There's no one like El. And so the death angel is going to be looking at Michael going, yeah, what are you doing here? This is my job. Why are you interfering with my job? And so the, apparently they're arguing about the body of Moses, but Jude points out Michael, even as he argues with them and says, this is a special case. He doesn't judge the angel. He just says, he invokes the authority of the throne. says says, the Lord rebuke you, right? So there, you've got two angelic majesties, each of them saying, this is my job. Well, who's going to settle the dispute? The throne, Adonai himself. And so that's why, you know, we have to understand these are created beings and a lot of cases where we perceive it as you know, an obstacle, a trouble or something. Um, We have to understand that, especially out here in the nations where we're scattered, we are dealing with principalities and powers in high places. And so we appeal to the throne for help and he can send help. He can send an angel with an override switch (laughs) from the throne. And it might to us seem like it's taking a lot of time to happen. But in that realm it's they're not as concerned with time as we are. We perceive it as taking a long time to get an answer. But when in doubt as to the source of the adversary there's nothing wrong with doing what Michael the archangel did and saying the lord rebuke you. The lord rebuke you because if it's proper the lord will. And if it's improper he won't. He'll just say they don't understand. That angel's just doing the job I told him to do. Let's look, let's take a look here at Daniel. Now, like I always said, he's our best example of understanding how these principalities and powers work. So if, if you could, I recommend reading all of Daniel 10. We're just going to pull some excerpts out for the sake of example. Uh, so in Daniel 10, let's start at verse 13. And this, remember, this is Gabriel or Gabriel, which means the strength of El. It says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was standing in my way for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Okay, so we've got a chief prince of Persia, but uh, there's also kings of persia. Now from the text it's really hard to tell whether these these kings are actually more angels assigned over persia that are standing in the way or are these actually kings like of persia it doesn't sound like it. It sounds more like this is some sort of thing that's happening in heavenly realms like there's a chief prince and then there's others who maybe manage these levels of kings or other beings in authority under him, right? So it's, in many cases, it's not just one that you're fighting against. It can be many, like a chief prince and then angels working under him in levels of authority. And then he said, then Gabriel said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am leaving and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come." So not only did he have to kind of fight through the prince of Persia and the princes of Persia to get the message through to Daniel, a a message that Daniel is going to record and a message that the prince of Persia nor the kings of Persia want to hear. Because remember, they're single-minded. Persia is their interest. That's their one thing they do. They take care of Persia. And at this point, Daniel is living in Persia, which was the second beast empire. So the angel's bringing the message, the end of this beast empire is about to arrive, and then Greece, the third beast empire, is going to arise. Well, the prince of Greece is going to be thrilled, <laughs> but the prince and the kings of Persia, they're not going to be thrilled. and so. Uh, Gabriel's basically saying, yeah, now I got to fight my way back because they don't want this message to get out. Their whole goal is uphold, strengthen, take care of Persia. If the prince of Greece comes, then Persia will suffer. And then uh, skipping on down, uh, he says, however, I will tell you what is recording in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, Michael, your prince. Right. So Gabriel's primary role obviously he's a messenger. And he has a lot to do with the with regime change. But he points out that the he had to have Michael to break this message through to Daniel because Michael is uh the prince over Israel. And therefore, Israelites are the personal concern of Michael. He says, Michael is your prince. Even though, Daniel, you are in the Persian Empire, nevertheless, the Holy One is concerned about you. And he says, Michael, your prince, and help me with this, because Michael is obligated to act on your behalf. if." the answer from the throne to your prayer is positive. We've got angels that have names. And like we said last week, the, the names of the angels will reflect a particular attribute of Elohim. And it, it'll reflect their unique mission, like Gabriel, the strength. Um, when you talk about you know dealing with principalities and powers and regime changes and so forth, you would have to be a very strong person or angel. <laughs> I don't know if an angel is a person or not, but it's not a people. It's an angel. But Michael, who is like El, that reflects the uniqueness that he is the creator. And none of these angelic beings can compare to him because they are created as awesome as they are, as majestic as they are, because see, he puts a little bit of his majesty on them. Like a, a sheriff gives a deputy a badge. Uh, and people often want to worship the angel. And they're like, no, don't do that. I'm just a reflection of, of what's coming to you from the throne. That just reflects who I am and the message I brought to you. Don't worship me. Uh, but they're pretty awesome if you can perceive one of these beings from the other realm. So we've got the prince of Persia. And he's going to fight against the strength of Gabriel but he has to relinquish dominion over Israel to Michael, because Michael is their prince. Even though Daniel is in captivity, Michael is still his prince, right? Okay, Daniel 12, this helps. Now at that time, Michael, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting content. So, Now we see more clearly how the prince Michael, the great prince, his assigned duty is to stand guard over the house of Israel. When this great prince Michael arises, it will be at the time of the footsteps of Messiah. And so when this great prince arises, that means Israel is arising. When we see the powers and the principalities of the air shaken, which you know, all we see on earth is the resulting chaos on earth among the nations that as one of the things I said, they turn foamy. It's just like the sea when the, when there's a, a storm coming in and it, you know, it's just throwing up foam on the beach. Well, the nations right now are foamy. They're in turmoil. They're angry. They're restless. They're scared. And it's just more foam and more foam and more foam. And but this is also a sign that Michael the Great Prince is arising with the footsteps of Messiah, who's just banging these things loose. And as more and more plagues are loosed upon the earth, more and more these principalities and powers there will realize that their time is short, and that once the House of Israel awakens, like uh, Daniel's being told here. Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Even during this time of great distress that has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And so he talks about the resurrection of the dead. Those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. At the time that the house of Israel arises, they can retake their prophetic roles as ruling and reigning and judging with King Messiah. So there's uh this idea, you know, that comes with Michael, Who is like El Michael? Who is like him? But then um, who is like Israel is the next question. Deuteronomy thirty three twenty nine 29. It says, Blessed are you, Israel. You see why it was so stupid for Bilam to want to curse him or Balak. You can't cross that boundary. Blessed are you, Israel. Who is like you? Just like Michael, who is like El? Okay. Who is the people like Israel? There's no other nation like them. A people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, and he who is the sword of your majesty. So, yes, there are angelic majesties who reflect the glory of his throne. He takes a little bit of his majesty and glory and puts them on them, puts that on them. So, basically, authority to rule. But guess what? When Israel arises with King Messiah, we will be revealed as though who are blessed and saved. He will be revealed as the shield of our help and our sword. And any majesty that emanates from us is because of his sword. And remember, his sword is the word. It says, so your enemies will cringe before you and you will trample on their high places. Oh, those high places of idolatry out here among the nations? They're going to be brought down. But this is a people who know better than to try to bring appointed principalities and powers or even demons back in to the land of Israel, because it's a place and a people under personal supervision. See, it's just like, who was like El? Who was like Israel? Who was like you? Israel, a prince without, right? We go, we got Michael the prince, but look at Israel arising as the prince of El and having this sword and having this majesty because there are people saved and prepared to take that place. And that's why we have to be so prepared. If he's refining us now, let him refine. If we feel like we're in the iron furnace right now, let him iron us out because we don't want to make it out to the wilderness. We, we want to be refined through the wilderness of the the peoples in Egypt, but we don't want him to take us out of Egypt and say, wait a minute, the gathering process takes 10 to 11 days. (laughs) Let's not miss the boat here. Let's not get out there. And then during those 11 days start being, you know, complainers and rebellers and revolters and those sorts of things. He irons us once and he's going to iron us twice. And if we'll, we'll let ourselves be ironed by this iron furnace, then we can go up to the land and be described just like here in Deuteronomy thirty 29. Let's take a look at another scripture here. Oh, a couple of them. Deuteronomy four nineteen and Deuteronomy four thirty nine. This is the warning. Beware not to lift up your eyes to the heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the people's under the whole heaven. And then he says, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. So, yes, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they represent principalities and powers that are appointed by the Holy One. And these are allotted to the peoples for their protection to keep the earth alive. Otherwise, we'd fall upon each other and just kill each other, like in the days of Noah, would wipe each other out. We're doing a pretty good job anyway. At any rate, we we can't look to those principalities and powers as a source of security. That's why we say don't lean on the world systems for security, for healing, for security, for economic security, uh, for social security. (laughs) Don't look to those world systems These things are allotted to all the peoples under heaven. You can live in those nations, and you can live with those systems, but you shouldn't be drawn away to worship and serve them. You have to remember where your citizenship is. Those things are allotted to the nations. But remember, you're under his personal supervision, and he has a place prepared for you, which he personally supervises, Why in the world would you look to the systems of the world? Why in the world? That was dumb. Why would you look to those systems of the world instead of to him for your security, for your safety, for your growth, for your fulfillment, for your sense of purpose? So the sun, the moon, and the stars represent these rulers, but they're not to be worshiped. They're only created. They look after their interests in their assigned territory. So as you see these battles going on below, understand how great the battles are in the heavenlies as they're working these things out. Just allow Messiah to start shaking these things before he actually appears. He's shaking up these assigned territories because they're not going to be needed. I don't know if they there will still be some. You know, there's really only the 12 constellations that represent the tribes. There might be more than that. I don't Know that it's worthwhile, at least for me, to look any more into it than that. Other than to prepare, we have to. We have to remember where our citizenship is. We can't take gods that we did not know. That and when we say "no" in Hebrew, like "daat," it's experiential love, it's sacrificial love, it's relational love. And so, our experience with these principalities and powers—it's not that we don't have that relationship to them they're never to be worshiped our sacrifices are for the sake of the lord he is god and heaven above and on the earth below there is no other and if we turn to these other entities if we see their systems as the source and the solution to all problems then that's going to be a problem because see what we should be proclaiming is the good news among the nations. Why are we out here among the nations? Just uh, to hide and wait until King Messiah comes? Or we see Michael the Prince arise? No, we're out here among the nations to proclaim the good news. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook and our YouTube channel.